Welcome to Listener's Advisory, the San Diego Public Library podcast. Are you a lover of the literary genre of romance? Today, we'll hear from three professionals about the history of the romance genre and how it's changing for the better. So stick around. This should be fun. This is Listener's Advisory, and I am Jessica Buck, librarian at San Diego Public Library and romance librarian on Instagram. This episode is the first of a three-part segment focused on the romance genre. This first episode, we are talking all about the history of the romance genre and what it's like today. I am joined by romance genre historian who currently runs romancehistory.com, Steve Emma Down, and San Diego's meet cute romance bookshop owner, Becca Title. Hi. Hi. Happy to be here. Okay. So we're just going to start off with hellos and introductions. So tell us about yourselves and how you got involved in this wild and wonderful genre that is romance. And I guess let's start with Steve. Yeah, so I, you know, honestly sort of got interested from an academic standpoint. Um, I was working with a large university romance collection of both manuscripts and books. And I got the job and sort of walked in and went, oh, I need to understand this a little better. And I was someone who was always a genre reader as a kid. So I sort of fell into understanding the tropes and ideas. And then the more I read, the more I got interested in the history of it. Because while romance has been studied from sort of a sociological point of view, the history of it really hasn't been documented. So I got into sort of digging and uncovering names and books and histories, and I haven't stopped ever since. And it's just something I really enjoy doing. I am I am not someone who found romance novels on like a grandmother's nightstand or anything like that. I my grandmother read a lot of books and my mother reads but more like nonfiction. My mother's an economist. So, I was just a big reader as a kid and I remember reading my way basically through the entire bookstore and being like, "Wow, I've read every available book." which is not possible. Uh, But I was like, I guess I'm done here. And then I found I am maybe the one person that this campaign succeeded for. But Avon had briefly tried to start a young adult line of romance that hit me exactly at the right time. It was called Avon True Romance. And every book was um, a woman's name and a man's profession. And they got a bunch of really incredible romance authors to to do it. But I didn't know who any of those people were. Like Beverly Jenkins wrote one. Um, but I didn't know who Beverly Jenkins was. But I did know who Meg Cabot was because I was a Princess Diaries fan and Meg Cabot wrote two of them. So I just sort of was reading every book Meg Cabot had ever written and I ended up in Avon True Romance land. And I've been a romance genre reader ever since. I mean, among other genre reading, but that's how I found it. I love it. (laughs) I love how everyone comes to it differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think especially now, I you know, we always historically talk about the paper bag at grandma's house that had all the the category romances in it. But now I think you get, you know, people who come in through library eBooks or, Mm -hmm. you know, still because of grandma's romance bag, but still there's all these different angles in. Yeah. We see a lot of people coming into the bookstore who found romance through TikTok, particularly during lockdown. A lot of people have come to not only genre romance, but come back to reading. We hear a lot from from folks have recently come back to reading from TikTok. 
Thank you. Okay, on to our first question. Um, let's start with talking about the early romance genre and when the romance novel really came to be. And for those who are listening who are very new to the romance genre, just stumbled upon this happenstance and are like, what is a romance novel? So a romance novel refers to a type of genre fiction novel, which places its primary focus on the relationship and the romantic love between the main characters. And of course, has an HEA, happily ever after. And if it's a series, sometimes happily ever after for now. Um, and that's why we love it. We want that happy ending. So Steve, since you're our current resident romance genre historian, start us off by just talking a little bit about the romance genre and kind of how it started and how it really came to be. There have been love stories in printed fiction for as long as there's been printed fiction. I think, you know, we can sort of think of romance as, as being very old, but also relatively new. You can kind of look at someone like Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe as like a prototypical historical romance. And you can look at Jane Austen as a contemporary romance of the sort of 18th and 19th centuries. But really, the way we think of romance started at the beginning of the 20th century. So the industrialization had brought this sort of burgeoning middle class, both in the United States and the UK. And you started to see paperback houses popping up and hardcover houses who were just interested in cranking out as much fiction as possible. And so the first major development in romance is Mills and Boone is founded in London in 1908, first as a general publisher. And then in the 1930s, they start to move into the romance space. And they sort of become the big name in, especially in the English middle class and lower classes, because their books were cheap and plentiful and you just never ran out. And then in the 1940s, uh, sort of post-World War II, Harlequin is founded in Canada, in Winnipeg in 1949. And they start again as just a paperback house that's publishing everything and anything. They had books about gardening. They had books about football. There's books about curling. And then in the 1950s, they start sort of discovering the romance market for themselves. And then in, uh, what is it, 57, they become the exclusive North American publisher for Mills and Boone's romance novels. And so these two publishers sort of grow because there is a market for love stories uh, within the American public and the British public. Not to say that other publishers weren't there. You had Dell, Avon, all of these other publishers are sort of developing alongside, beginning in really the 1930s, publishing a lot of nurse romances and sort of career-oriented romances were a big thing through the, the middle part of the 20th, mostly because they kind of crossed this line between adult and YA. They would kind of hand a girl a nurse romance to not only like get her married, but also get her a career. And that sort of thing. And then in the 70s, you sort of start to see romance develop again as both second wave feminism and a still growing middle class kind of opens up women's lives and what they want to see out of the world. So Harlequin is still growing and in 1971 actually buys Mills and Boone wholesale. In 1972, The Flame and the Flower is published by Avon, which is sort of the what we kind of see as a high water point for the, the bodice ripper romance. It's, you know, sex on page. It's very not chaste. There's rape on page as well, which is a different discussion. So through the 1970s, you start to see more explicit romances 
1979 that crosses into contemporary romance with Vivian Stevens at Dell's Candlelight Publishing. And then in 1980, the Romance Wars start, which is Dell Candlelight, Harlequin, Silhouette, which was published by Simon & Schuster. And then every other publisher in the known world decides to start publishing romance because they see profitability in it. And then we've kind of just rolled from there. There's been a lot of, as general in publishing, a lot of consolidation and buyouts and houses going under. But really, it's a very 20th century story about the evolution of publishing and women's place in sort of the broader social structures as well. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that was great. And Becca, I know that when you started Meet Cute, specifically the Meet Cute bathroom, you did a lot of research into the history of romance novels because you have them all over the wall. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm going to say like 80% of what I know I learned from Steve. I just think the history of genre romance is really interesting. I think it is both longer and shorter than people think it is. It really tracks the social changes of the 20th century in a really fascinating way. And it still is doing that. Um, It's a very fast moving genre in some ways and a very slow moving genre in other ways. I just think it's really interesting to look back at, you know, the high watermarks or the sort of major firsts in romance history and think about how long ago or how not long ago that was and also what is still happening as a first, you know, now. Absolutely. And we can see a lot of the perception of what people think romance is changing. Um, I keep hearing, oh, yeah, romance is back, you know, because all of a sudden we have some that are like bestsellers and they're on the list. Everyone's reading them like, oh, where did romance go? And I'm always like, well, it's been here. You just maybe weren't hearing about it as much as you would have thought. So How have you seen that perception change? And what do you think those reasons are? I think there there is a lot of, and I'm sure this is true across genres, but there's a lot of sort of generational churn of both readers and authors that, you know, kind of ends up burying the fact that this existed before. So like you get this kind of, you know, oh, romanticy is this hot new thing. And in the end, it's also just a reflection of a trend coming back around. Sweet Starfire by Jane Ann Krentz was published in 1986. And it was hailed at the time as romance and fantasy finally coming together. And so again, like you see these things, and I guess, you know, I have maybe a longer perspective than most people. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, that Yep, no, it's about time for that to come back around. Paranormal or mafia, all of these things have been around before and come back again. But it's up to this new generation to sort of find it. And what they do with it is always really interesting, I think. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about the genre history, about those nurse romances, and the way one sort of subgenre that is considered new, that's very popular right now, is new adult romance, mm-hmm. which is sort of, it's a little older than YA, they're early 20s, very late teens, sort of like coming of age, but it's a genre romance. And I, you know, they tend to be pretty sexy, but, and Mm -hmm. the nurse romances were not. But I do think it's sort of an interesting, it's not the first time that genre romance has been focused on that particular life period for people. Absolutely. It was a huge part of Harlequin's bread and butter through the 60s and 70s was always 
17 or 18 year old virginal female and then the much older sometimes far too old male character so yeah that definitely something that has come back around and even new adult i i feel like went away for a little bit has has started to come back in a really interesting way so steve you talked about kind of the like ebb and flow you know, mm-hmm. how it's very cyclical, how things like come back around. But what about some of the the changes? So not just things that are coming back around, but actual changes in the genre, maybe what's being written, how it's being written. And what do you think are some of those influences? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, really, the biggest change over the past, say, 50 years is just sort of a level of sexuality within romance. There's sort of a a broader acceptance of different aspects of sexuality or different kinds. You know, you do see more queer romances now. They existed in the 70s and 80s. They were just much more under the radar and weren't published by like a Harlequin or Hallmark or, or someone like those where we've seen those pop up over the last few years. You know, we see more authors of color certainly now than we did in the 70s and 80s. But even that comes and goes in really unfortunate ways, I think. I think also the shift toward self-publishing and indie publishing, that is where a lot of the authors of color have gone because they can tell whatever story they want, however they want, when they're controlling all aspects of it. They're not making the kind of money that, you know, some of the mainstream published authors are, but they're getting that kind of freedom. Some of the majors won't really offer them in the same way. I think that's probably the biggest shift, which is thanks to ebooks and audiobooks and things like that. Yeah. And Becca, as a now bookseller of romance, you see a lot of what's popular, what's not popular, because it's what people are asking you for. It's what you're putting on display. So what kind of changes have you seen? Well, so it's interesting, right? Because I think You know, I said in some ways it's a really fast moving genre and in some ways it's really slow moving. And I think that's sort of what Steve was speaking to, where traditional publishing is a very slow moving industry overall. It has been very slow to diversify the kinds of books that are being sold by major publishing houses in terms of racial diversity and diversity of sexuality and really just anything, ability, all sorts of things. But genre romance moves very quickly in the sense that there are these sort of micro trends, they sort of pop up, they become incredibly popular, everybody wants to read it. And romance readers are sort of famously voracious. I mean, a lot of romance readers just absolutely tear through books. And so if everybody's really psyched about hockey romance, for example, which is something that's been really big lately, people cannot get enough hockey romances, they can't, you can't write them fast enough. And that is actually, that's, I think, one of the reasons that indie publishing and romance has been so successful where indie publishing for other genres is not as big an influence in the genres or has not been as successful and is not as well respected. Indie romance is available to respond to these micro trends incredibly fast. Indie romance authors are writing 10 books a year. They see a trend and they just go to their computer and they write it. Traditional publishing just doesn't have the ability to move that quickly. And so I think that's another place where indie publishing has been a really success in romance. Yes, I love all the hockey romance. And we talked about changes and how those influence the romance genre. But also the genre is so powerful because it helps change people. Like, I am not a sports person. I don't like sports, but I started reading hockey romance. And I'll be honest with you, I'm going to go to a hockey game now. And it's not just things like that. 
where you are introduced to new ideas, but also the genre is just great because it brings in conversations about what's important in a relationship how you should be communicating, consent, safe words, having an open dialogue about what you want, topics that maybe some haven't felt empowered to explore before they pick up a romance novel. No, and I think that's a really good point. Romance is often done a lot for historical study as well. Someone like Beverly Jenkins, who is constantly uncovering these stories of black women in American history that, you know, are based on true things and you go, that can't possibly be. And, you know, she gives us this endless run of material. Yeah. And I, I think, again, those micro trends have always been there. It's the romantic suspense or Amish romance or like these very small moments where you're like, and that can't possibly be a thing. And then it becomes this huge thing all of a sudden. Highlander romances or or whatever. And yeah, romance readers will just will just soak it all up. I also think one of the things I love about genre romance and that I've heard from some authors is that in particular with books by by authors of color and about characters of color, particularly in traditional publishing, what what buyers are looking for is books where there's a lot of hardship and everybody is sad. And you know, those can be great books, but that is the narrative that we always see about people of color and there isn't any space for like black joy or, Mm -hmm. you know, beautiful, joyous immigration stories, you know, with the hard stuff, not ignoring it, but like people are allowed to be happy actually. And people are allowed to read stories about people who are happy. And I think it's important for readers to be able to not only to see people who look like them having like fun, joyous, delightful, like rom-com stories, but also for people who don't look like those characters to read those stories, because the way that media reflects people who are not like you really affects the way that you think about other humans. And I think it's great to be able to pick up a really fun rom-com about a Black character. Like that's just nice in your pleasure reading, but it doesn't, it's not every book you pick up about a Black character is not about like slavery and trauma. Right. Yeah. I think that is a great transition into talking about more lately, and it's wonderful seeing so much more inclusive romance and not just like, not just racial, but people's sexuality, identity, like I'm seeing so much of it. And I love it because we need to see it. And I think that we even need to see more of it. And definitely with I feel like with traditional, there's so many hoops. There's so many boxes that have to be checked for things to be published. But with indie, there's it's just, it's everywhere and it's wonderful. What do you think still needs to happen like in publishing so that we can have more of this wonderful, diverse, inclusive romance getting into the hands of readers? One of the things that came up during the HarperCollins strike earlier this year was who works in publishing. And this is this is true across fields. It's not just a publishing problem, but it's, you know, who can afford to live in New York City and work an unpaid internship for five years while they break into publishing. And I think that historically what we've seen is when people of color and different abilities, whether they're Black or Latinx or, or something like that, when they get into publishing, they bring other people with them. And, you know, they see this need, like we talked about, to read books about people like yourself. When we see people get into publishing who come from all kinds of backgrounds, then we start to see the the books change. And I think until that changes, which I honestly, I don't see changing anytime soon, that's really 
I think that's the catalyst for more change. I think that's what we need to see happen. Yeah, I agree. I think the way that traditional publishing works, more or less, right, is that it's trying to make money. It's an industry. And it's going to buy books that are like other books that have sold really well. Or you may get someone who wants to champion a book because they just really loved it because it spoke to them in some specific way. But the reasons that people love books are very personal. And to find somebody who's going to really want to champion a book about a character who's in some way a minority, a racial minority, a sexual minority, often it's because somebody relates to that book on a personal level. And so that that person has to work in publishing. The other way that it might happen is with indie publishing. The sort of most recent big trend in publishing that I've seen is traditional publishers buying up indie books, which is pretty new and it's it's everywhere right now. I mean, we stock indie books in the bookstore and I'm like running out of indie books all the time because they keep being bought and they're not indie anymore. They're, they're trad, there's like a delay and then they get re-released from a traditional publisher. You know, no one person can affect a book going viral to the level that a traditional publisher is going to buy it. Everybody can try to diversify their own reading and talk about the books that they are loving. And if a book gets popular enough, you know, a traditional publisher might buy it. And then that's one more author who has a traditional publishing contract. That's one more editor in traditional publishing working on this kind of book. When you look at the big indies that are going viral, they are usually very white and very straight, but it doesn't have to be that way. Readers don't have any control over who Harlequin hires as their next editor, Um, but you can control what you're reading. And to some extent, that really can matter. So let's end this um, wonderful episode, sadly, because we could just keep going. What are you excited about and looking forward to in the future with the romance genre? I'll go first. Like we've talked about, I think there's a lot of new aspects of representation coming out. One of my favorite books of the last year was Olivia Dade's Shipwrecked, which included both a male and female character. They refer to themselves as fat, and the fatness was not a plot point. It was just how they were. That is a small thing, but you know, as sort of an average sized male, that's really unusual in romance. So I think that, you know, to see a publisher like Avon putting a book out like that gives me a lot of hope. And seeing some of the like, the really weird stuff that people can come up with, you know, monsters. And I think Kit Rocha has a new book coming out with dragons. That's really exciting. And I think that there's always a new place to go. And even though we talk about romance as a cyclical genre, I'm, I'm always curious to see where where people push at those edges. That's always, I think, fun for me. Yeah, I agree. You know, we've talked a lot about some of the heavy stuff about publishing and about the genre, which we absolutely should do, and which is, I think, both important and really interesting. But also romance is a fun genre. Like, that's what it's for. It's so fun. Um, You know, and things are hard right now, I think, for everybody, for a lot of people. And romance is just so joyful. That's the point of promising a happy ending, right? Like, you're going to invest like 350 pages in this book, but but at the end, you will not be depressed. This will be like a nice part of your day. And so I'm just looking so forward to getting more of those stories. There are so many books coming out that I'm looking forward to. We're getting more historical rom-coms. I think like that's a sort of cyclical thing that's coming up right now, which I love. I have made it my personal mission to get some of the TikTok girlies into historical romance. I think a lot of the stuff that's popular in contemporary is mirrored really in a fun way in historicals, and that's 
a place that a lot of people can move to and really enjoy. There are so many great queer romances slated for 2024. I am living my best life, particularly sapphic romances, romances between two women. Even in the world of queer romance, like those sort of lag behind gay romances between two men. And I think we're just on the upswing of a lot of really great sapphic romances. So I'm super excited for those coming out in the in the coming year. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this wonderful little journey talking about the romance genre. Before we end, I want to share that the Library Shop SD is partnering with Meet Cute Romance Bookshop to bring New York Times and USA Today bestselling author Katie Robert to the San Diego Public Library for an exclusive Q&A and book signing for the release of Midnight Ruin, the sixth installment in the Dark Olympus series. This will be on January 16th at 7 p.m. You can get your tickets from libraryfoundationsd.org or meetcutebookshop.com. That's going to do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank our guests, Steve Amidon and Becca Title. For more information on the resources mentioned in today's episode, please see our show notes or visit us at sandiego.gov forward slash SDPL podcast. This podcast is supported by the Library Foundation SD. For more information on the good work they do, visit libraryfoundationsd.org. If you like what we're doing here at Listener's Advisory, please consider sharing our podcast on your social media, leave us a rating or review via your favorite podcast directory, or tell someone you know about us. Thanks in advance.